Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Now, my novel today is actually a hybrid mix of Philip Marlowe and Lord of the Rings, a detective novel with more than just a dash of the supernatural. The book is called The Last Smile in Sunda City, and the author is Luke Arnold. So, Luke, welcome to 3CR. Thank you so much for having me, David. Great to be here. Now, your hero in this story is a rather worn man for hire called Fetch Phillips. Now, if I can just insult you a little, because I know you're an actor, but I (laughs) I love reading myself. Do some good, she said. Well, I tried, hadn't I? Every case of my career had been tiresome and ultimately pointless, like when Mrs. Habit hired me to find her missing dog. Two weeks of work, three broken bones, and the old bat died before I could collect my pay, leaving a blind and incontinent poodle in my care for two months. Just long enough for me to fall in love with a damn mutt before he also kicked the big one. Rest in peace, Pompo. Then there was my short-lived stint as Aaron King's bodyguard. Paid in full, not a bruise on my body, but listening to that rich fop whine about his inheritance was four and a half days of agony. I'm still picking the complaints out of my ears with tweezers. What sort of character do you have here? Who's he based on? Well, oh, who he's based on might be interesting, but definitely Fetch was really born out of my love of film noir and those Chandler, Dashiell Hammett detective stories that uh, my dad used to read. And so when I was kind of in my teens, I picked them up, started reading, and I think it was a bit of a bonding thing for us, watching Bogart movies and reading those books. And the inf- so very early on, I you know, kind of was influenced by those books that also has just permeated popular culture in every way. Mm. Like, I'm not the first person to bring a hard-boiled detective into another genre. It's a recognisable image, but it's not stereotypical, and we'll go into that a little, uh, a bit later. But he's got a way (laughs) with words. I mean... Even the sorry, even the wallpaper looks suicidal. I mean, how did you come up with these lines? Well, I think you're so allowed to with that kind of character. I think you know that style has always you know let you play, just let you play with words and descriptions. And if you've got a character whose job it is to notice things, you, it it allows you to spend that time. And this book very much indulges in that kind of writing. Um, and how I came up with it all, I'm not quite sure. I think at a certain early point in the writing I found Fetch's voice and you know sometimes it is one of those times where a lot I felt like he was just writing through me in a way and Mm. would describe it 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 wasn't always that I'd plan everything before you'd sit down and have the idea of the place in my head and just let it roll out I mean there's the alcohol there's the Mm -hmm. fact that well inept probably not the right word but he suffers physically in in, in encounters so he's not on top of everything, not the uh, hero. Oh, very much. Yeah, very much not on top of his game when we meet him. And then also, in an appeal to sort of Philip Marlowe, if you'd like, Philip Marlowe <laughs> smokes camel cigarettes all mm-hmm. the time. Fetch Phillips has Clayfields, and now we're starting to 
move away from the stereotype clay fields in this instance? Yes, in, in this instance, they're like a they're kind of a toothpick made from the bark of a tree that was kind of used as medicine that um that was always quite potent in this magical world. Um, as we'll get into talking about, this is now a world where that magic has been damaged. So, yes, he kind of chews these what used to be like potent tranquilizers, but are now a little bit of a painkiller that he kind of uses partly to take off the edge of an injury that he got a while back, um, but also a bit of that self-medication that uh, men like Fetch might be prone to. Okay, so now we've hinted at the uh, sort of environment that uh, Fetch is in, so a sort of recognisable character, Mm. but now we're taking him into what is, in some ways, a recognisable world in that it's fantasy or uh, fairy world type. The fairy world's a bit too light-hearted, but we're in Sundaria and Sunda City. Sundaria was an inhospitable land with no native peoples. In 4390, a band of dragon slayers followed flames on the horizon, thinking they were closing in on a kill. Instead, they discovered the entrance to a volatile underground fire pit. Rather than wallow in their mistake... They decided to put the flames to use. And also then this leads to Sunda City, where Sunda City began as a working class town full of blacksmiths, miners and metal workers. It wasn't all honest work, but it was the kind of thing I understood. Digging ground or moving shit around, the sort of gig made sense to me. So again, it's sort of um, the troll kingdom type thing that you would have read in Tolkien mm-hmm. and such like. So now you've got another recognisable world. The Well, there's so many questions you could ask here. The, the reason for that setting? Yeah, uh, look, I think a number of reasons. I think partly it's, uh, I think fantasy allows you to examine thematical elements uh, and just a lot of ideas without potentially stepping on toes of you know, people in real life. And I also think it gives your audience goes in with different expectations with fantasy, where you are sometimes more open to be taken on a journey as opposed to, yeah, if you said it in a real place at a real time, a lot of readers come in with their own expectations. Um, so for me, I think it just freed me as a writer to open up the fantasy element. But I also think it putting this kind of character in a world where there was magic. And I think there's a little bit of... Something felt right to me about having a character. I think when you have such a cynical... We're examining that kind of really cynical character, like that hard-boiled detective, you know, uh, that, you know, Humphrey Bogart used to play, if you look at Casablanca and things like that. And I think, you know, the more cynical someone is, there's a good chance the more romantic they were at some point before. And so this idea that there was this magical place that, you know, is kind of an industrialised version of a fantasy world, but still was a place where... You know, that at one point Fetch walked into a world and there was magic. It was amazing. Well, let's and now in- it's all fallen apart. Yeah, Let's go into this magical world a little because who is it populated by? Well, we, and we got, could be yes, here all afternoon. Could, absolutely. Everyone is in this. Um, there's, yeah, it is, you know, we've got werewolves, wizards, elves, all the usual suspects, really. And But they're from different fields of fantasy in many ways. Yes. Uh, you've even got an appeal to Greek mythology with the sirens mm-hmm. and such like. So this is a whole world populated with a litany, a litany of lit- literary yeah. characters and recognisable characters from across the spectrum. 
How did you keep tabs on them all? Uh, luckily, I, I worked out that that one note in Microsoft Office is very helpful to keep tabs of everything. And look, and there is, I mean, there is a lot in here because, you know, really the first time you write, you write for yourself. And I think that's where I started was just exploring what could happen. Um, part of the creation myth, which will be examined a bit more in for- further books, is that there is a river of magic beneath the crust of the planet. And so... Even though it's like we name drop all these other kinds of species, you know, and that we are rec- that we have seen before, something in this world is making sure they all connect back to this river in some way. They have some part of their own origin story. So I think at least that in my head is finding different ways that certain species or animals or humanoids at time came in contact with the river. It changed them in this way, which means that even though... They're taken from everywhere. Hopefully in this world, they all feel connected in Mm. some way. Well, you've mixed the two genres, which Mm. is fascinating in itself. You've now got this uh, Sunda city, Sundaria. Mm. You've mentioned the notion of magic, but something's happened to the magic. Yes, when we start the story, uh, this is six years after an event called The Coda. Uh, which is a name given to the event where the magic died. So we find out fairly early on that it was uh, the human army and the humans in general being jealous of the fact they were the one species that did not have connection with the magic, tried to tap their machines into the river and the river froze. So the dragons fall out the sky, the wizards can't do spells and things are getting pretty bleak. This doesn't actually have any contemporary relevance, does it, in terms of losing the magic and the influence and interference of the human world? Look, it's it's hard to avoid the climate change connections here for sure. It's funny, in my... Without, you know, discussing the deep things of it too much, I have another whole metaphor for what it's really about. Something that feels much more personal, I think, which is just a little... Yeah, without saying too much, a little bit about... You know, the choices we make and that the world seems magical when we're younger and as we grow up, we make choices and you can suddenly look around and go, oh, shit, it doesn't feel as magical as it used to anymore. <laughs> and I think I'm kind of, I think I made decisions that got me here. So that's where the idea came from. Once you get started, there's no way you can avoid drawing in a bit of the, uh, yeah, the relevance of the magic of the world dying around us right now. Well, it, it dies in that sense of as we get older, we get more cynical. Yeah. Uh, hence the popularity of such characters like Fetch or Marlowe. But it also appeals to what is an integral part of our culture. Um, I mean, if you go back to the the fairy world, if we shadows have offended, think that this is all is mended, that it was an integral part of a culture to have this river of magic yeah. or belief behind it all, and every culture's got one. Yeah, and we do, and but that's and just feeling con- and that feeling of connection to that that it always felt like we were we were somewhat one with the earth, with the heavens, with the splendor around us, and that somehow we're told as we grow up that if you want to, well, if you want to be a grown up, you know, I think especially with masculinity, if you want to be a man, you shut that stuff off and you get a job and you contribute to the economy and you toughen the hell up. And we just put up these little barriers around ourself and our heart and our connection and our personality to become this idea of a man 
that, you know, or idea of a grown-up or idea of a human that we are sold from very young. And this gets us then to the originality of what we've got here. Apart from the blending of the two genres, you've got these mythical creatures stuck in the human world and there's a werewolf who's sort of half transformed, caught between the two worlds with, uh, you know, the characteristics of a werewolf and a person, a limb hanging out here and such like. And, you know, very sort of powerful sort of image of, of these people trapped in time. Yeah, it look, it's a dark place, uh, like Sunder City at the moment. It is, everyone's having it pretty tough. Uh, and so what's weird is then, you know, but everyone is except the humans, the one to blame for this. And Fetch, who feels a particular amount of guilt. So I think there, there is definitely an element, you know, in the inspiration here of, you know, where you... Where until, you know, very recently where things are changing, you know, I think being in Australia, but in a lot of places in the Western world where you go, I think we're contributing to a system that is hurting a lot of people, that is doing a lot of damage, but amongst it, we're doing pretty bloody good. And, you know, and I think Australia's been in that position for a long time where we generally have a great way of life and it's good to think they're like, hey, we just go along with how we're doing and not... But underneath us, I feel like somewhere deep in, we've had a sense for a long time that like... Yeah, but it's something's going to come back and bite us at some well, point, right? And uh, yeah, Donald Horn's line, you know, the lucky country yeah. run by second-rate people. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, and so there is within that, like Fetch, always being exposed to um, people who are wearing very physically the effects of things that him and his kind have done. You know, and then going like when you're met with that. When you're met with that and the guilt is there, you know, a lot of the challenge of the book and the series will be for him to get over that guilt and see if he can actually do some good uh, and mm. enough good to combat what the bad that he's Fetch done. Fetch is caught between two worlds because mm. he doesn't identify necessarily with the human world. He's no. a human. Yeah. Uh, but then he's in Sunda City where yeah. everyone's a mythical character. You're on 3CR, this is Published or Not, and I'm talking with Luke Arnold about The Last Smile in Sunda City, his first novel. Excellent, well done. Um, Thank you. Then we actually get to the detective mystery. We've, yeah. we've talked around it, but now there's this whole notion of the task Fetch has, and he's actually hired by a school principal, interesting, um, to find... Edmund Rye. Now, the school principal, the school's, the principal's office was tucked into the back corner of the building, untouched by the afternoon sunshine. A well-stocked bookcase and a dusty globe flanked his desk, which was cluttered with papers, used napkins and piles of dog-eared textbooks. There was a green lamp in the corner that lit up the room like it was doing us a favour. Burbage was unkempt to the point where even I noticed. Brown slacks and a ruffled powder blue shirt with no tie. His uncombed shoulder-length hair began halfway down the back of his round head. He sat himself in a leather armchair on one side of the desk. I took the chair opposite and tried my best to sit up straight. <laughs> Fetch is the poor schoolboy caught in front of the principal's office. He, I, I, Fetch is very much stuck in a kind of eternal... Yeah, I mean, growing up is a big thing for him. And I think he always... He has this tough demeanour, but is always... Um, feels like the kid and, and is is a bit lower status in his head, I think. So, yeah, I think it is fun to put him in a... <laughs> put him across from the principal early on. And But the principal has a job for him. And what is that job? Yes, so uh, uh, Professor Edmund Rye has gone missing. Uh, so Ed, And Edmund Rye is a vampire. 
So, uh, like all the other creatures of Sunder City and Arketalos, the greater world, um, they're all still trying to work out what happens now that the magic has gone. Well, in, in the case of vampires, what's the problem? Well, the problem is that they are dying. They can't drink blood anymore, and so without blood, they have none of the powers they had before, uh, but it's a long, painful process. So, essentially, they are withering, decaying like corpses, but something inside them is still holding on. So, where they lived, you know, rise hundreds of years old, most vampires were, um, he's decided to become a professor so that he could pass on those hundreds of years. That wealth of knowledge. Of, yeah, that yeah. wealth of knowledge to kids before he goes, which seems an admirable thing to do, which makes Fetch think that, all right, if this is a good guy doing the right thing, then, hey, maybe that is maybe that is a useful job for me, you know, for me to stop drinking myself to death for a couple of days and try and find this guy, even though things are probably pretty bleak because chances are this guy's just crumbled into dust somewhere out there on the streets. Mm. And Burbage is, in fact, also someone else caught. He's a wizard, but he's digits? <laughs> yes. So um, the idea is that in this world, wizards controlled magic through the use of their fingertips. Uh, that's how they accessed the kind of source of magic, brought it between their hands. Um, but the th- the idea that because you could do that with the fingertips, fingers the thumbs are kind of this you know they're a kind of base very human tool and so very powerful wizards would lop off their thumbs as a way of showing how that they had this great use of of magic and no longer needed the opposable thumb this uh you know base kind of yeah human version now with the magic gone that's uh the joke's kind of on them a little bit now yeah well all of these practices people have put in place that are now redundant and again that speaks in some ways to the contemporary world (laughs) definitely yeah i think everyone and that's it look there's a very there is a meandering quality to this first book where we which is something i loved of those old detective stories if you're you know for certain people picking it up expecting a a fantasy novel like you read now where you're going from fight to fight and picking up swords um like i in a way like this world could have that it, it, this could almost be happening, but not with this guy, not with this world yet, and definitely not with this guy yet. This mm. is very much him wandering the street, bumping up against all these characters, and we get to see a bit of who they were before and what they've become since the coda has happened. Yeah, and then so there's the first problem to solve. So as the story progresses, then we have another missing person along the way. Yes, then uh, not long after that, we realise there is one of uh, Rai's students that he was tutoring, a siren is missing, and that's really where, you you know, it it takes a little bit for Fetch to get going, and especially when realising this young girl is missing, that definitely kicks things up to another level. Mm. I actually loved, well, uh, January, who's the second person missing, as you say, a siren. I loved that reference to the sirens. These uh, women who could win the hearts of men with their song. Um, and then when they came to the uh, mortal world, they were beautiful, still beautiful. Um, and um, the first thing they looked for was? Yeah, was a husband. The idea that there's this kind ki- well, it's a bit of a thing that the sirens existed out there and they were luring, um, you know, people, luring ships onto the rocks, as we know. But then as has kind of what was happening before the coda happened, this kind of industrialised world, people were moving to the cities, species were coming together. And so the sirens moved in and mostly paired, paired up with the husbands and kind of started almost traditional families. Um, but then, and then the strange thing that since the coda happened, that... 
because the idea that sirens couldn't really connect with anyone without using the song. Without using the song. That yeah. once the coda happened, that broke. So even though they were still beautiful women, that all their partners kind of came out of this daze and realised they'd been somewhat under a spell and wandered off. So, yes, all... Um, especially in Sunder City, all the, you know, siren women are kind of, a lot of them single mums now, which is what January's mother was when we find her. I, I, I find that, you know, the, the emotional tragedy of that yeah. was probably the most profound uh, in that case. This leads us to a whole range of contemporary issues, things that you sort of uh, tackle. Schools is one. <laughs> now, my background is, um, I'm... My veins are full of chalk dust, Yes, actually. right. As I stepped outside and took a breath of cool air, a whiff of cloves caught my attention. Around the side of the building, leaning against the mural, was a large half-ogre in a shirt and tie, smoking a small cigar, likely a teacher. I sidled up and asked her for a puff. Sure, she said. I should stop anyway. I try to blame my health on the coda, but I'm sure these aren't helping. I took a small puff. Tobacco wasn't really my thing, but it was mixed with a sweet blend of spices that wasn't unpleasant. You working overtime? Detention. Some 11 girls decided to dig around in history and use what they found to bully the other kids. A fight broke out with a couple of gnomes. I'm supposed to go back in and explain to them why that's all in the past. Her sigh could have sunk a sailboat. Still ironing out the kinks of the all-inclusive elementary school? I just hope we get a chance to. We get more complaints than enrolments right now. Every parent wants us to give their kid the same schooling they had when they grew up. Dwarves want metalwork, elves want history, the gremlins want clamar, clug, I can't even pronounce that word, clagamory, whatever the hell that is. She threw a cigar on the ground and crushed it under a boot. We've moved on, but nobody gets it. They'd rather send their kids to the school of the first stream or the Lycom home of education, where they keep kids separate and teach them species-specific shit that doesn't matter anymore. She looked up at me properly for the first time, like she'd only just realised she'd been talking to a real person. You got some tobacco in your teeth, I said. She picked it from the gap in her incisors. You the guy they've got looking for Rye? I nodded. Well, you better find him. He's the only staff member anyone respects. Without him, I don't think we've got another year. Where did you get your understanding of schooling <laughs> and adolescent <laughs> behaviour from? Oh, I'm not sure. I'm glad that resonates then. Um... I think, well, I, I don't know. I guess it comes from somewhat. It's, it's a strange time in the world now, right? I think it probably always has been, but it's it doesn't seem it's not a bigger jump to go to this world. I, I guess one of the big questions of this book is like, how do you be a good person in a broken or breaking world? And there is an element now that it does feel like we we're reassessing a lot of stuff now, and definitely. I'm sure that, you know, how we educate people, what we should be teaching, what we should be preparing them for. There are there are big questions now because it's all going to go like what – because when you're doing that, you're deciding what world you're – what world you think it's going to be in the future. Yeah, but these – you've got a future world here, but these are contemporary questions. It's been – it's an inter- <laughs> eternal problem of, yeah. of the behaviour of kids, bullying, all of that sort of thing that, yeah, yeah. that – Teachers are expected to address and are not given the means to do it. <laughs> yes, right. You've got a nail gang in mm-hmm. there as well. Well, we've had media reports of, of gang behaviour and such like. Well, yeah, I think so. The nail gang really, without saying too much about them, the idea is when Fetch starts 
you know, fight stumbling over some dead bodies of magical creatures. Uh, the cops mention that it could be a nail gang, which is a group of humans who are going around when they see like one of the species species is dwindling in numbers. It's like they're going around to put the last nail in the coffin. Uh, a, a bit of an idea that there are humans who believe that in the pre-coder world, they were held down by the magical creatures who all came together. And uh, now that uh, they have the power, they kind of want to reclaim their rights. So, look, there's definitely some, uh, you know, it's... Well, it, these are things people can recognise and identify with in well, terms of what's going on in the world. Absolutely. And so it felt like... and but And also, I think... What's interesting is to fetch as well how he works out how to tackle the game, you know, how to tackle that idea. And the, I guess the idea as well that it's very easy for some of us to get arced up and angry about that. Um, but what do you actually do when you encounter those people? How useful is it? You know, um, yeah, it just kind of provides another, as, as really this first book where the idea is a bit of trying to get Fetch together to understand what he can do. Yeah. And his kind of different avenues that in some ways the Nail Gang sounds like a perfect villain. When it pops up, you go like, how great. We've got a gang of assholes who, you know, are going around murdering like how brilliant. But even in that, things aren't always... As it's, they never, say, it's never that easy, is it? That you just go, let's go punch that guy and that'll solve all our problems. Well, Fetch thinks he is doing the right thing where the Nail Gang is concerned. Mm-hmm. But then there's a sort of uh, outcome that occurs, uh, which is even more macabre, you might say, but we can let the reader find that one out for themselves. (laughs) Another interesting thing is you've got a character called Baxter in Mm. here, which I found fascinating because they don't identify with a gender. The calm voice was carried on the heat of a huffing steam engine. I turned to see Baxter Thatch waiting behind me, hands in the pockets of a death black suit. Balanced over a beer barrel chest was the face of a nightmare brought to life. Skin of smooth obsidian held eyes of fire and fixed into a furrowed brow with the curled red horns of a ram. Baxter had been a friend of Hendrick's, at one time even a friend of mine. If Baxter was male, you would call them a gentleman, but Baxter was something else in more ways than one. Hello, Fetch. Long time. I nodded, suddenly aware of the state of myself shaking and violent and out of breath. Around the room, civilians were standing at attention, worried that the madman might be tired of hitting doors and would turn to them instead. Sorry, I muttered. Baxter placed their stone hand on my arm and gave it a little squeeze. I only have a few minutes, but they're, your, they're yours if you'd like to talk. Them and there, what are you doing here? Um, well, I'm in some ways, uh, you know, woefully unqualified to discuss, you know, to talk too much being a, you know, straight white cis man that I am. But um, in this world, as we're dealing with all the mythologies, I brought this character Baxter in, who is a one of a kind demon, for want of a better word. So Baxter was born from the earth over a thousand years ago and has spent um, most of their life trying to work out where they come from, what their purpose is. And in this postcoder world, has kind of turned to bureaucracy. So he is, is a minister uh, for many things in, in Sunder and is trying to help as many people as possible. But with that, it, it by doing my best to keep my ears open to current conversations and people whose you know, experience of life is different to mine, realised that assigning a gender to Baxter didn't seem right when really in their experience that that they wouldn't have... Yeah, they weren't born for a man and woman. They they don't have someone else to, uh, 
But yeah, it's, it, it's, it's another right. yeah, it's yeah. another contemporary issue that we're dealing with, and it's coming out in literature as well yeah. in terms of how pronouns are used and such like. And that's, and as I'm stumbling over things, what was interesting as well was to find that you know the right way I wanted to talk about it by talking to other, talking to either non-binary people and finding out the pronouns they liked. That often that would get pulled up in spell checks and you know and grammar things like that. When and so it, it was interesting seeing that oh there are things happening actually. Uh, in the community and society that, yeah, the rules of literature and the dictionaries are still a little bit behind. And, and yeah, but it's it's a conversation happening now. And it, look, for me, I'm, while I, I talk to non-binary people in the, in the writing of this character, it's not a deep exploration of that at the moment, but it, it did feel... It did feel like it wouldn't have been right to, yeah, to assign Baxter a gender when in, they probably wouldn't have yeah. one in this but world. But it, it just raises another of those contemporary issues. Now, we haven't, we're going to have to bring the, the interview <laughs> to an end, unfortunately. There's a couple of things. There's the structure. There's still a backstory we haven't uh, explored and we won't have time, mm-hmm. but there's a whole history to fetch that ties him into the current story and perhaps explains some of his cynicism. So that's something the reader is going to have to find out for themselves. And then, of course, does Baxter find Edmund Rye? Does Baxter... Oh, um, Baxter fetch. fetch. Uh, sorry. That's I'm, all right. No. Jumped up. Does Fetch, in fact, find um, Edmund? Does Fetch, in fact, find January? Well, that's the reason for reading a detective novel. So, look, it's been a fascinating discussion. Luke, thank you very much for coming in today. And you've already got a series planned, so to speak. Yeah, oh, thank you so much for having me. There's been a great chat. And, yeah, this second uh, second book in the Fetch Phillips archives is completed. We'll be kind of showing the cover and title soon. Um, so, yeah, it, it feels like this is the springboard for hopefully many more to come. Okay.